As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you, uh, please, to pray with me. Father in heaven, um, it is amazing, not only that the Lord of glory has come to live among us and die for us and rise and ascend and rule and reign uh, for the sake of his church, but also that the Lord of glory would enlist us with him. And so we pray that even as we read this scripture, it will ignite in us a renewed sense of this calling to speak of him. Take away, please, any resistance we have to listening, any errors that may be in my or our minds. But Father, that we would hear from you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to John in chapter 21, John's gospel, chapter 21. I want to read verses 1 through 14, please. John chapter 21. Hear the word of God. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off, not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now this is quite an interesting chapter in the Gospel of John. Interesting because it seemed to me, felt to me really, and to many others throughout history, as we finish chapter 20, the previous chapter, as we finish chapter 20, that, that John's done. I mean, he had reached this great climax of, of, the, of, of his message, really. And that the great climax was when Thomas 
as one who hadn't seen the risen Jesus the previous week, when Thomas finally sees Jesus, he makes this great declaration, my Lord and my God. I mean, you know, you've been reading John from the very beginning. He starts out by saying that this Jesus really is God in the flesh, if you will. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And, uh, and so we get this sense that, that, that John wants us to know this about Jesus, that he's really the word that was with God and the word that was God. This word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so this, this whole gospel of John, as he lays it out, is this, this revelation of that. And so we get to this final exclamation. We think, okay, we're done. We see it from beginning really to end. Now it's really clear. And then John gives a summary sentence really at the end of chapter 20 about his purpose. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So you sort of think, feel like, well, we're, we're done here. But then, there's something else. And so the question is, why? Why after that night's neat, tidy ending, does John add this next piece? But I think the key, not only I, but most, think the key is in this word revealed. That after this, that is after all of that, after, after he was revealed as the son of God and all of that, that, my Lord, my God, there's something else Jesus wants us to see, wants us to understand about himself. After this, Jesus revealed himself uh, again to the disciples by the sea of Tiberias and he revealed himself in this way, as opposed to the ways he had been doing it, but in this particular way. So you get the sense that this particular way is something that Jesus wanted us to see. John wanted us uh, to know, uh, really. And so we see it now, this revelation. And, and really, there's, there's, there's a couple of parts to this. I only read one today. We'll take up the next one next Sunday. But a couple of parts to this. We, we, we know the part I didn't read, really. If you've been around the church a while, that's the part where Jesus takes Simon Peter aside and begins to ask him this question. He asks it three times, Simon, do you love me? And, and you remember that it was Peter who denied Jesus three times. You get a sense of restoration here. But, but in the midst of that restoring Peter, he gives them another word. And at the end of, of each question, Simon, feed my lambs. Simon, nurture my sheep, if you will. Simon, shepherd them. That's this sense of this calling to, to Peter and, and also then ultimately to the church. But in this one, we have really breakfast at the beach. We have Jesus meeting with his disciples and, 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 and this whole fishing incident and, and feeding them, uh, uh, feeding them the, the breakfast that he had for them of, 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 of fish and some, and some bread. I think what we find here really is an extension of what we considered uh, a while ago, before Easter, what we considered when we were listening to Jesus, eavesdropping on Jesus with his disciples on the eve of the crucifixion. You remember on that night, what was on Jesus' mind was the fact that he was going to die, fact, that he was going to rise, fact, 
that he was going then to leave them, that he was going to ascend. And so it was going to be different for his disciples, and he wanted to, to begin that conversation. He didn't tell them everything he could possibly tell them. In fact, he was very honest with, me, with them to say that, you know, the Holy Spirit's going to pick up where I leave off because there's things here that, that, that you're not ready to hear. But, but, but he gave them some insight into what was going to take place. And he, he gave, them, gave them comfort, first and foremost, really. He said, yes, I'm going away, but don't worry, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I'm going to come back and I'm going to get you and we're going to go there. We're going to be there in a sense in eternity forever. A day will come when you'll be with me where I am. That sense of comfort. I'm leaving, but don't worry. I have purpose in my leaving. You prepare a place for you. I'm not abandoning you, but, 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 but I'm going to come and get you. And you'll be with me really uh, forever. Not only that, but till then you'll know my presence because I'm sending another comforter to you, another one like me, the Holy Spirit. Can't see him, but uh, he'll be with you, he'll be in you. And what he'll do is he'll bring who I am, really, to you. So Jesus could say unequivocally that, that I'll be with you, and my Father will be with you and in you. We'll make our home with you. So, so they wouldn't be abandoned. And in a spiritual sense, the Lord Jesus would be with them. And so he says, all right, going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to, to be with you spiritually, present with you. And they would have then an ongoing relationship with Jesus, even though he would be out of sight. That of an ongoing relationship with Jesus in the sense, he said that he would be, he is the vine. They would be branches to see that connection. He would say that you'll have this ongoing relationship with me because you will love me and your love will be manifested by obeying my commandments. That's, that's how that will be manifested. You'll obey my commandments. You'll, you'll follow me. Parentheses right here, just so we're not confused. We see our love is expressed by our obedience to him. Remember, we don't mean perfect obedience to him. We're not perfectly obeying him. It means we've abandoned all love for him. But remember, when we're obeying him, we're following him. First and foremost, we're believing in him. And when we believe in him, well, we, we, we come to him in the same way that Isaiah, same way that Peter, this sense of our own sin, we realize that and we realize that he's the savior. We confess our sins. We receive forgiveness, thus we live as forgiven people, that is, humble in his presence and before one another, you know. And we live a life of repentance that is desiring to live in a way that's pleasing to him. And so we call upon his spirit to help us. So we say we obey him. That's what we mean, that we live, live this life of confession and repentance and prayer and obedience and disobedience and confession and repentance and prayer and all of that. So that's that sense. So he says, your love will be expressed by following me, by, by being obedient to me, listening to my word and doing it. Um, we have this ongoing relationship again by his presence, his spirit with us. He's the vine. We're the branches. We're attached to him. We live, he said, with this ongoing relationship with one another. Their ongoing relationship with each other, our ongoing relationship with them and with each other is to love we're to love, and our love is to be a mirror, really, of the way that Jesus has loved us. It's the mark of being a disciple of Jesus, to love, you see, as 
he loved. He said that we would have this ongoing relationship with him and each other through the Holy Spirit. He would join us together with God and join us together with each other. All of that he lays out to them on this, on this night. He says that, that, that this relationship that they would continue to have, that we would continue to have with Jesus, this one who's ascended we can't see, is that we would abide in him, he in us, remain together, live together, being joined together, right? And we would abide in him as his word abides in us. That's our consciousness that he is in us. We know his word, you see? And we hear his word from the scripture. It's our consciousness to know that we abide in him. We hear his word, we believe it, you see? And we, oh yes, that's Jesus. Um, and, and we abide in him by then obeying him. All of that he lays out on this night. So now the question, as the reality hits, he's died, he's risen, and he's about to ascend. The question is, what's life going to be like for them? What's life going to be like, if you will, for the followers of Jesus even after the apostles? What's life going to be like after Jesus ascends when you can no longer really see him? What's life going to be like? And I think what happens here in John is he lays out two essential callings of these apostles and ultimately two essential callings of the church. One we could simply say in the context of evangelism that is witnessing to the truth of Christ. And the second is then as the church is gathered, shepherding the church. He lays that all out here. Well, we'll see next week about this sense of shepherding as he talks to Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes. He says, well, feed my lambs. And what we'll see here is that Jesus actually reveals himself as the chief shepherd. They're his lambs. He's the chief. My image, I want you to feed them, shepherd them under me. And now here in this particular Incident. I think what we're seeing is that Jesus is saying, now I want you to be, as I've told you before, I want you to be fishers of men. And here's how that's going to happen. You may have missed that the first time around, so I want to do it again. So here's the picture. We've got the disciples of Jesus, seven of them, Simon, Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and a couple of others. We don't know the couple of others because they're not listed here. We could talk about who they might be, but that would be a waste of time because we don't know who they are. If we needed to know that, John would have told us. So there's seven of them, seven of of the followers, the disciples of Jesus at that moment in time. Simon Peter, who was a leader uh, often of of the band, he said, I'm going to go fishing. Not unusual for Peter, of course, because he was a fisherman. James and John were his partners in fishing. Uh, before Andrew, his brother, may have been one of the two unnamed because he was in the partnership as well. We don't know, but, 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 but they, they went fishing, not an unusual thing. Now, Peter often takes a bad rap for this. If you've heard other sermons, I've probably preached them. Uh, I heard other sermons that said Peter was so disappointed because of his denial of Jesus that he thought himself to be such a failure that he was, he, he was decided that he was going to abandon everything and go back 
to his old profession, which was fishing. That makes for great sermons, but I I don't just see that in the passage at all. It doesn't tell us why he did it. There are other explanations, like he was hungry, and he was a fisherman, and they needed to eat. And so he said, well, Jesus said he would meet us in Galilee, so let's go there. The Sea of Tiberias is the Sea of Galilee. It's also what what, uh, we read earlier in Luke as, as, as Lake Genesaret. Genesaret, I suppose it depends on where around the lake you're from and how you'd pronounce that. But, uh, but uh, it's all the same. It's the Sea of Galilee. It's all the same place, you see. And, and so uh, Peter says, we can go there, you see. And so they, they, go, they go there and they, they went there. It was about 70 miles or so from Jerusalem. And so they said, go there. Jesus said, go there. I'll meet you there. And so uh, they're waiting to meet Jesus. What else are they going to do? Well, it's fish good enough and so they go fishing now it's fascinating this fishing because they'd fished there before as professionals that was their job and so they went back and they got a boat actually the literally says the boat it may have been their old boat for all we know they got in the boat and they they went out fishing they didn't catch anything. It's fascinating. I don't know if it's beginning to dawn on them, but before they met Jesus, they caught fish all the time. But ever since they met Jesus, every time they went out to fish without him, they never caught a thing. And so there they were, out fishing. It was nighttime, best time to fish. Best time to sell fish was early in the morning when they were fresh. And so they're out fishing, and they didn't catch uh, anything. And, and there was this guy, and they didn't know who he was, on the shore. Now, they had seen Jesus on other occasions, but perhaps it was because of the time of day. Perhaps he was a little too far away. Perhaps they weren't really expecting him to be there. Uh, perhaps he'd shielded them in some way from knowing who he was. We simply don't know. They just didn't know who he was. But this man calls out, and he, he's cooking, and he says, do you have any fish? And they said, no. And he said, well, why don't you throw your net on the right side? Now, why they did that, according to his word, we, we don't know. The last time that order came from them, they had been with Jesus. He had been in the boat with them. And so they, they probably, you know, Peter, you might remember, argued with them a bit and said, you know, we've been fishing all night and haven't caught anything and we're better at this than you implied. And, uh, and Jesus said, we'll do it. And they did it. But, but they didn't know it was Jesus. And so we don't know quite why they would have just sort of followed the voice of this random guy on the beach could be they were fishermen and so they threw the net over one more time and they caught a bunch of fish 153 of them now commentaries are filled with what that could mean you can only imagine 153 I mean wow you see in fact, if you take the numbers 1 through 17 and you add them up, you get 153. Of course, 17 is 10 plus 7. So you have the Ten Commandments plus the sevenfold Holy Spirit of God in Revelation. There you go. Thank you, St. Augustine. <laughs> there are others, but I think they said it was 153 because there were 153. And uh, I'm good with that. So how, a lot. I mean, fishermen count their fish. I mean, uh, they just, you know, that's what they do. And, and they, they caught large, big fish, and they were surprised, and they had 153. 
And there they were. But, but all of a sudden, when that happened, when, when their nets filled up, John, pretty perceptive John, says, wait a minute. I've been here before. That's Jesus. And they had been there before. They had been there before in the early days as they were first being called when they still were professional fishermen. Luke chapter 5, which you read earlier in the service. And there they were, you see. They were there then. Jesus comes. He was going to do some teaching. Got in the boat, says, put it out a bit. I want to teach. And, and so very practically, he could teach from the boat. And he, and he taught them. And after having taught them, uh, he, uh, he said, have you caught any fish? And they said, no. And it's been night. And Peter argues with them a little bit. But he says, put out on the other side. And they did. And they, they catch so many fish then that their nets actually break. And, and the boats almost sink. I mean, it was just a tremendous, tremendous catch. And, and that's when Peter's reaction, very different than now, that's when Peter's reaction was to fall on his face before the glorious Lord and said, I get the fact that you're not just a regular guy. Okay, I see you. I have a glimpse of the glory that, that's yours, and I'm a sinful man. And, and I simply shouldn't be, can't be in your presence. So depart from me. You see, all of a sudden it became really clear to Peter who this was and who he was in relationship to Jesus. And Jesus said, wait a minute. He says, from now on, I'm going to make you fishers of men. Now you see, this fishers of men thing is, 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 is interesting because it's this metaphor really, right? For, for what they would do, these apostles, and what the church significantly would be about. Catching people. Peter would know this when, when he would preach that first sermon on Pentecost. 3,000 people would come to faith. As we read through the book of Acts, multitudes, that's the same word, at least from Luke 5, about catching many fish. It's a multitude of fish. These multitudes would come. Multitudes would come and, and believe. And that's this, this great sense. Now, why exactly Peter's reaction was different this time than the first time? We don't know. It doesn't say. But this time, when, when he realized it was the Lord, he, he jumped in the water and swam the hundred yards to him, you see, to be near him. But two things. One is the nets this time didn't break. Don't know why. They just didn't. But a difference is, well, that Jesus this time wasn't in the boat with them. See, the difference this time is that Jesus wasn't right there. The difference this time is that Jesus was far off, but he knew everything about them. He knew they hadn't caught any fish. And he's saying to them, I'm indispensable in this. I'm the Lord of the catch. I'm the fisherman of men. Uh, you can't do this. Without me. And that's what he'd been saying all that night that he was with them prior to his crucifixion. He said to them, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Without me, you can do nothing. You see, a branch on a vine is to bear fruit. That was his message. A branch on a vine is to bear fruit. If it doesn't bear fruit, it's worthless. And he says, attached to me, abiding in me, 
my word abiding in you, you'll bear fruit. What kind of fruit? Well, the kind of fruit that resembles the vine. It comes from the vine. So we expect to bear fruit that resembles Jesus. And so in us, we're to resemble Jesus. That's the fruit. And we could get that various ways, but in the scripture, it's often uh, designated as the fruits of the Holy Spirit that comes forth out of us because of the presence of the Holy Spirit and his love, joy, peace, patience, and so forth. And we're to resemble, look like Jesus. Apples come from apple trees, right? Grapes from grape vines. Those in the image of Jesus from him, right? But also this sense of fruitfulness that others like Jesus will come from us as well. This sense of witness. Because not only would we have this ongoing relationship with Jesus through the Holy Spirit, but we have this ongoing relationship with the world. And remember how Jesus put it on that night. He said that the world will hate us, but we're to witness of Jesus to the world. And you see, in our witness to the world, there's to be fruit from that. And it comes as, as we fish in, through, by, abiding in Jesus, by his word and by his granting our prayers. Now, of course, we'll be different evangelists, some of us, many of us, than these apostles were. We all have different vocations, different callings, all of that. So we'll be different. I mean, Peter would be called to to leave all of this behind his profession and go and be a vocational uh, apostle. That would be his calling. He could make his living, if you will, that way. Paul and others would come and this would be their vocation. This would be their primary work to be apostles. And so we would see multitudes coming in response to their witness. Not so much for most of us, and, and we're not called to, to vocationally do that. But in every sphere of influence, you see, in every place we find ourselves, we're to speak of the hope that's within us. Peter himself, this would be his word to um, those who weren't vocationally called as, as he was. In First Peter and, and chapter 3 and verse 13, we read this. He says, now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what's good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. That is, even if the world hates you, as I said, you're still to be witnesses. Notice, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Just listen. We're all going to be in these kinds of situations. In fact, it may be in what looks like a bad scenario that you're being, they're suffering for even doing good. But still you're called to witness in the midst of that by simply offering why, a reason why, you still have hope, you see, in a hopeless world, a hopeless situation. In Boston this week, if the only hope is that we catch these guys, find out why they did it, and bring them to justice, 
we still haven't a great deal of hope other than to know that maybe we can prevent something like this, but we know not always. And maybe when it happens, we can find them again. But let's face it, throughout history, it keeps happening one way or another, in one place or another. What hope have we? We need to be ready to lay that out about the hope that is in the one who has come and will come again, you see. That's our hope. And we do that as people ask. And we all have places, don't we? I mean, we have places in our own lives here in the church as we teach Sunday school, as we teach Blast, as we pray for babies in the nursery, as, as we share with each other in our small groups, as we invite people to come, you see. This is the place where people hear about Jesus. We invite people to come. Every Sunday has been set aside by God for people to worship him. We call this public worship, not private worship. Uh, we, don't, we don't hide where we worship. We publicize it because everybody in the whole world is supposed to worship God one day in seven. They don't all fit here. So we have various venues around the city, various venues around the state, various venues around the world where, where people worship, right? But we're, we're all, so call people to worship so that you can hear this truth of the gospel. We know it in the context of our own families. And we share with our children. Second service, I'll baptize a little baby girl. And we do that. We offer baptism, the sign of the covenant, to our children as this promise to them. As Peter remarked on his Pentecost sermon, that this promise of salvation is for us, for them there, and for our children, and for those who are far off. So, so we give the promise to our children, and we treat them as we raise them as if they're near. Not far off, but near. We bring them near to this gospel. It's right in front of them. And so we tell them all the time. And we live it out before them all the time. Why? Because this is, this is the calling that we have to our children. The children of the church and your own personal, if you have them, children. Your, your children. You see. And siblings, to share with siblings. I'll be honest with you. I'm amazed over the years as I hear people's testimonies. How many people have been brought to Christ by their brother or by their sister. I hear this all the time from people. That my brother became a Christian and he shared with me. Or my sister became a Christian and she shared with me. It's just fascinating how this, how this happens in the context. In the context of families. And in and, and the context of spouses. You see, you see, the way that we must fish is connected to Jesus. If there's anything that he teaches us in both of these accounts, most especially the second even, that, that, that even though he's not with us, we can't see him, we don't know, but he knows everything about what's going on. And he's indispensable in the midst of this work. He's indispensable. We must continue to abide in him. And if you look, if you have time, if you look in, 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 in John chapter 15, where in verse 5, he says, he says, whoever abides in me and I in him, 
He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. And so we abide in him, as I mentioned previously, by his word abiding in us, by knowing the word. Of course it must, mustn't it? If we're really going to fish well, we must know the very word of God. We must know this gospel. If we don't, what are we to declare? What are we to say? And so the only way, of course, is through this this gospel. You know, one of the things about our church, we're so Bible-centered and God-centered and gospel-centered, and I always tell people nothing fancy. uh, Because, you see, years ago, someone gave me this line. He said, now, Bill, always remember What you win them with, you win them to. And so you see, if we win with fun and games, if we win with entertainment, if we win with my charisma, (laughs) uh, that's what we win them to. And someday, I won't be as cool as I presently am. (laughs) That's frightening. And someday the entertainment factor will will fade away. And when all that's gone, and you've won them with that, thus to that, then what will they have? And so you see, all that we have really is the truth of Jesus, the Word of God. And so we must depend upon Him and win with the Word of God. You see, because we win them with it, if it's the word of God that transforms, the word of God that breaks through, if it's the word of God that's meat and drink, if it's the word of God that really brings new life, and it's the only thing that can, then it's real, you see. And then all of life is to this word. So Jesus said, I'm indispensable. I mean, he had these fishermen who were really good at fishing, I suspect. But every time they were around Jesus, they couldn't catch a thing. What was he saying? Without me, you can't do anything. It's my word that must abide in you. And so get it there and, and, and obey it. Live it out, you see. Live it out because you really don't know it until you live it. You really don't know what forgiveness is till you've received it and walk in it. You really don't know help in the midst of difficulty until you've had difficulty and call upon the Lord and receive his help. You see, you don't know the joy, really, of living in purity until you've repented and walked with him. But when you do, you see, then you have hope. Then you really know it. And in abiding in him, then as those come to ask, then you have it, you see. And then not only that, but he says this to them, verse 7. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done to you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to me my disciples. And then later, just in that same discussion, verse 16, he says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear a fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you so that we may bear fruit, you see. We abide by knowing his word and living it. So we have something to say when the question is asked. And we pray that this fruit would come. 
I think probably when we get to glory, we can ask the Lord this question. Who prayed for me? And I think he'll have an answer. For some of us, it may be a whole list, right? With circles. These fasted and prayed for you, right? And, 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 and uh, how many are here today because of mothers or fathers or Sunday school teachers or spouses or siblings prayed for you? It's just really true who bear fruit. And this prayer in Scripture is almost always, sometimes there's just expressions and we think prayer should be easy, but almost always prayer is put, when it's really taught about, prayer is put as persevering prayer. In the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus tells us to pray, he says, ask, seek, and knock. Those, those expressions are what we call a present imperative, which means you're always to be doing it. It's a command that's never stops commanding us to pray. So it's really ask and keep on asking, seek and keep on seeking, knock and keep on knocking. The images that Jesus gives us are, are images of persevering prayer, not because God is reluctant to give, but because of the nature of what we're asking for. What we're asking for doesn't happen overnight. Whether it's for own holiness, it doesn't happen overnight. We continue to pray and continue to pray and continue to pray that we would live holy lives. That isn't a once and done prayer. It's a forever, it's an ongoing prayer. And the same for those to be born again. The same is for those to receive the gospel. Don't stop. That's the sense of it. Why? I don't know. Why we can't pray once and be done with it. It just seems clearly from the scripture, but also in life. It just doesn't happen that way. That we're in this thing. If you have children, don't stop praying for them. If a spouse is in a don't stop praying. Continue to persevere. If you have parents, don't stop praying. Your friends, don't stop praying. Jesus is, is indispensable in this. We can't do it without him. So continue to pray. It's amazing the expectation is a great hall. H-A-U-L. So many fish the first time, the nets broke. So many fish the second time, they had 153 and couldn't believe it. It's easy, isn't it? For me, anyway, to get discouraged with that. Uh, I read the paper, I look at what happened last week in Boston and know that that's just the tip of an iceberg. And I I think, God, where's the hall? Why aren't the nets full? Why aren't the nets breaking? I think he whispers the word that says, I'm the Lord of the catch. Just put out your net. Trust me, the day will come when you'll see it, when you'll see the catch And you won't be able to count it. You'll be amazed at it. And then there's this final piece. He says, come and have breakfast with me. I know this is going to be trying. I know it's going to zap your strength. So don't forget this. Don't forget the fact that not only am I Lord of the catch, but I'm your shepherd. I'm the one who nurtures you. 
So there he is. I, I don't know if the smell of the charcoal got to Peter. I have no idea. But the only other time there's a charcoal fire mentioned in the Gospels was the fire that was round the area where Jesus was being tried and people were warming themselves and Peter said he didn't know Jesus. I don't know about you, but there are certain smells in life. Like when I get up in the spring, if it ever comes in the spring, and I smell the air, I think I'm nine years old again going to Little League practice. There's just something about, about that smell. Or, you know, you smell popcorn. You think you're at the movies. Whatever. I, I don't know. But now there's Jesus. Very different scene. And he has fish and he has bread. And the way John puts it is exactly the way John put it in chapter 6 or thereabouts. When, when Jesus had a little bit of bread, a little bit of fish, remember? And he fed thousands. He was able to nurture thousands with just what seemed to be a little bit. And there's a sense in which he's saying, I can, I can take care of you. Come to me. It's going to be difficult. Come to me. It's going to be trying. Come to me. You're going to get weary. Come to me. You're going to get hungry. Come to me. You're going to have needs. Just come to me. Sit here with me. Abide in me. Be with me. And I'll feed you. I have plenty. Oh, I ask you to add some fish, but I have plenty. You know me. It doesn't take much. I can just take a little bit and I can feed multitudes. Good for us, for me, to hear. I have a list in my mind of people who have yet to come to faith in Christ. And I pray for them. If God gives me opportunity, I talk with them. I suspect it's true for you as well. It should be. If it's not, start a list. Say, don't take anyone for granted. We can get weary. We have to keep going back to Jesus, saying, feed me. Teach me the truth again. Restore me. Renew this truth of the gospel in me. I need to hear this again and again and again, lest I get discouraged. And he says, come to me, all you are weary and burdened, and I'll feed you. For I really am the good shepherd. You see, that's of such great importance to us because not only does he call us to, 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 to draw these people in by putting out our nets as we abide in him and give them the word and pray and all of that, but then he says, now what I want you to do next is to shepherd them. And that will be next week. Let's pray together. Father, pray for me, for us, that you would enable us, God, to so love what you've done for us and love you and realize your great worth that we would speak of you as you give us opportunity. We know, God, that some have more opportunity than others, some would be better than others, some personalities probably lend itself to this, some are in situations where they can do it more than others, but, but as each one has opportunity, may we abide in you, depend upon you, 
May we pray, may we speak that which is true, that others may know this great hope that is within us. Father, even as we celebrate this great hope, we are troubled, obviously, by that which goes on in the world. This past week it was magnified to us because we know that tragedies happen. Perhaps every moment of every single day, things we don't know about, things that aren't dramatic. If we put our minds to it, God, suppose we would become utterly traumatized and depressed. So first we pray for those in that situation, the people in Texas and other places that have lost loved ones, others whose bodies have been um, deeply harmed, whose psyches have been damaged. We pray, God, that you would bring health and healing the church in those areas especially would be compassionate and show forth the love of Christ in a way that would show real real hope we do give you thanks God for the protection of the unborn that uh, new legislation in our state will provide so God we pray that this law that acknowledges that life begins at fertilization will be applied justly and that now many will live We give you thanks for that. We pray, God, that we can have inroads into the world in which we live to protect those who need protection. Father, be with us that we may live in such a way that the hope that we have would be obvious and that people would ask us about it. And as they do, as we give them truth, as we pray, that they would believe. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.